Advent. Four weeks where we celebrate and prepare for the celebration of the first coming of Christ. And we anticipate, just, you know, it's how we just went through uh, Matthew 24, 25, where we talked about his second coming. We talked about his judgment and all that sort of stuff. This very, very, very appropriate. Uh, I really wish I could say that I had planned it like that. I didn't. You all know me better than that. I don't plan these things. God does. Um, our reading this morning, uh, Isaiah, that, that hope of Israel, those who lived in a land of darkness have seen a great light, right? Very appropriate for people living in the United States. Very appropriate for people living on earth right now. Uh, a land of darkness. And the the hope of Israel when when Isaiah wrote that think about think about what is taking place we're we're at the divided kingdoms we're in the period where you have the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin and they at least had the occasional king that was worth something the occasional king who did what God commanded or at least part of what God commanded and then you had the northern ten kingdoms and tribes that only had bad kings. They only had kings that went off on their own and they worshipped Baal and, and Asherah and Molech and, and Dagon and all of these other gods and they followed after the, the Philistines and, and the Canaanites and all the other tribes. And basically they abandoned everything that God had taught. And it's in this situation, uh, if you remember the beginning of Isaiah's letter uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, probably the, the, the greatest picture of God's holiness that we have in Scripture, where Isaiah says that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord seated on his throne. That was Isaiah's vision of the throne room. And King Uzziah was one of those good kings in Israel. And this was the year of darkness. This was a period where the people were going through a lot of Really bad stuff. And we hadn't even gotten to the captivity of the northern ten kingdoms. We hadn't even gotten to the destruction of the temple and the overrunning of Jerusalem by Babylon. We haven't even gotten to the bad stuff yet. But Isaiah in chapter 9 writes about that hope that the people have because they know that God keeps His promises. That hope wasn't realized in Isaiah's day. It wasn't realized in any of the prophets' time until Jesus showed up. We celebrate Christmas Day. However, we need to remember that the first advent of Jesus wasn't just about the little baby lying in the manger. Right? Um, it, it wasn't even about the his birth by the the heavenly host, the the, the the just that picture of these poor shepherds minding their own business, sitting on the hillside, talking to their sheep. When all of a sudden, boom! There's a light in the sky, and a voice comes booming out of nowhere that says, "Don't be afraid." <laughs> Too late, right? And then all of a sudden, these angels cover the sky from side to side and start singing glory to God. Just blows my mind. But as big a picture as that is, as big a deal as it was for the wise men to travel from the east. By the way, what's east of Israel? The answer is yes, because if you if you go east far enough, you wind up right back in so where did they come from? They came from okay, from Persia, based on some archaeological stuff. They traveled for a long time. When did they arrive? Did they arrive while Jesus was still a baby? Did they arrive after he had started toddling? Who knows? Go out and do an internet search. You can find arguments for both sides. It, 
as big a deal as that was, that wasn't the point of Jesus' first coming. Um, For seven years, we've celebrated Advent, and I've made a point to talk about the life that Jesus lived. That's the point of the Advent. That's the point of his first coming. Was not that he came as a baby, because let's do a quick show of hands. How many of you were born? (laughs) It's just to check and see if anybody was paying attention. I know there's a couple of you out there thinking, well, my parents always told me it was found on a rock, right? We were all born as little babies, right? That's not exactly unusual, And it wasn't about the fact that he died, though his death was important. If the only thing he came here for was to die, why would he have had to have been born? Right? I mean, this we're talking about the second person of the Godhead. He could have, in fact, many people will tell you that he was manifested in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, when the people of Israel are about to take the promised land and Joshua is, is facing this, the, the report of the spies who had just come from Jericho, this huge walled city, and and he doesn't know what's going to happen. We are told that the commander of the the Lord's army, the the angel of the Lord, the commander of the, the army of heaven, shows up and Joshua does what? Face first in the dirt. Okay, every time somebody shows up from heaven, the first thing they have to say is, stop, don't be afraid. And Joshua says, are you with us or are you with them? And how does he answer? Neither. The question is, are you with me? Got it. Right? There are many who say that this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Because he's pre-existing. He, he wasn't created like us. He's eternal. So if all Jesus came to do was die, he could have showed up good Friday morning in Pilate's living room. Hey, need you to crucify me. Okay? <laughs> he could have done that, but he didn't. He showed up as a baby because it was necessary for him to grow into that man and walk in obedience. Even obedience to stuff that didn't apply to him. It has never ceased to amaze me, no matter the number of times I've read it, the number of times I've preached it. The baptism of Jesus. John the Baptist, because we're Baptist, right? John the baptizer, that was not his last name, by the way. (laughs) John is called by Jesus the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. The greatest prophet. Okay? Okay? Even Isaiah doesn't come close. John is standing on the banks of the Jordan River, and he is proclaiming a prophetic word over the people of Israel. And what does he say? Yeah. Repent and be baptized. Because God's kingdom is like, and y'all need to fix your attitudes. And Jesus shows up as part of Israel. And John recognizes, I mean, they're cousins, so they should know each other, right? But John recognizes Jesus not just as my cousin Jesus, but as my Savior. And Jesus waits forever, and John says, Stop. You have nothing to repent from. You should be baptizing me for repentance. Because I'm sinful, you're not. And Jesus says, I have to, to fulfill all righteousness. Not because he had sin to repent from, but because as a member of Israel, John commanded him to repent and be baptized. God said, do it. So Jesus did. Blows my mind. The one person in Israel who had nothing to repent from did it anyways. 
We just recently went through the people's reaction on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and they cried out to him, Hosanna, save us, son of David. They recognized something in Jesus. His fulfillment of the office of prophet at the very least. And there were signs that indicated he was the promised son of David, the king they were waiting for. There was something about Jesus' life that made people renew their hope. That theme of hope has been with God's people since Genesis chapter 3. Now, all you Bible scholars out there, what happens in Genesis chapter 3? The fall, right? Okay? It starts with some of the most ominous words in all of Scripture, at least if you're a snake. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent. You can almost hear the piano chords at the beginning of that chapter, right? We just we just get done with God's to existence and creating everything and, and assigning man the task of naming the animals in the garden and making a helper suitable for him. And then chapter 3, dun-dun-dun, now the serpent. It's like an old western. I mean, that, that's your radio serial is what that is. And all of this, chapter 3, the fall of man, the entering of sin into our lives, the, the curse upon the earth, the curse man, the curse upon woman, all of this. And then in verse 15, if you pay very, very, very close attention, Genesis 3.15, you might want to mark this down in your Bibles. Bruise his heel. God's talking to the snake. He's talking to Satan. That, us theologian types, call the proto-evangel, the pre-good news. That's the good news right there. That the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of Satan. The promised victory, Genesis 3. Not even, not. I could probably count it out, but I would. I would wager a guess. Just looking in the Hebrew, I would wager that between verse six and verse fifteen in the Hebrew, there's probably less than a hundred words where Eve decides that the food that the fruit from the tree looks good for food and so she eats it and then and then as I was having a discussion the other day with a bunch of guys where was Adam <laughs> yeah because it says then she turned to her husband <laughs> she didn't have to go looking for him he wasn't in the den watching football he was right there and he ate the fruit and that's when sin entered the world from verse 6 to verse 15, there's probably less than 100 words. No hope. All the hope. That quick. As Jesus was through his ministry. <clears throat> glad I've got a bookmark. Um, here... Where we've, we've been going through Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 26. We've hit verse 26. He's here in the upper room with his disciples. The disciples, now I've been kind of hard on them, as we talked about. The first time he said, I have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, Peter argues with him. The next time he says it, they just kind of, right? La, 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 I can't hear you. The next time he says it, they don't respond anything. And now here, they're in the upper room. The disciples still had hope. 
the disciples are still in this guy is who we've expected to be. He's going to kick the Romans. He's going to establish. Even when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. What does that mean? What do you mean we're going to betray you? We're going to turn away and break away from the group? That word betray has so many meanings in English. The, the Greek word that is used is to turn one over. And yet they still had hope. The Passover meal that they're celebrating is a hope. Back in, in the book of Exodus, people of Israel, after years and years and years, the, the end of Genesis, the beginning of this tells us that there are Pharaoh did not remember the deeds of Joseph, right? Because at the end of Genesis, the Israelites are favored guests in Egypt. And then the beginning of Exodus, you get another one of those piano chords, dun dun dun, there arose a row. And after years and years and years of backbreaking hands of Pharaoh, they finally see their deliverance from Egypt in the person of Moses. Moses comes up the backside of the Midianite desert, and he goes to Pharaoh and he proclaims, Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who are you? Oh, that's right, I remember. You were raised up in the in the house with with, with my my aunt or my cousin, or we don't know exactly the relation that Pharaoh's daughter had to the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And, no, I'm not letting your people go. Thanks very much. So then Moses takes his staff and throws it down on the ground. What happens to it? Turns into a snake. Okay, I'm convinced. You can have them, right? No, Pharaoh calls for his magicians. They come out, they throw their staffs on the ground, they become snakes. And then Moses' snake eats their snakes. Okay? I'm not letting your people go. So Moses walks down and he turns the Nile River into blood. And all the lakes and all the streams into blood. That's kind of freaky. Then the magicians come and they turn the water into blood. See, we can do it too. Anything you can do, we can do better. Or a song by that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they battle Pharaoh and Moses, a hard heart against a heart following in that. Now, I will admit, you know, it's easy to portray Moses. I, I like, I'm going to pick on my parents because I grew up watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. We watch that movie every year, two or three times a year, right? And then the first time I read Exodus, I'm like, wait, whoa now Moses was 80 years old when this started Charlton Heston didn't look no 80 years old when he went back to I don't know any 80 year old man that looks as spry and as manly as Charlton Heston did I'm 40 and I feel like I'm falling apart he's been a shepherd in the backside of the desert and Charlton Heston man so battle is going on and remember when when god said moses moses come here <laughs> right moses is in the desert and he hears this bush talking to him that's on fire and it's not burning up moses's first thought was oh that must be god no moses's first thought was i need more water um sun's getting to me then he goes and he looks and it's real. And then God says, take your shoes off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Got it. Done. What's next? I want you to go back to Egypt. Just in how I left, it wasn't the best of circumstances. There's a warrant out for my arrest because I killed somebody. That's okay. I want you to go. But who am I? I'm the son of a Jewish slave. That's okay, I want you to go. I want you to tell Pharaoh, let his peop- let your people go. And, but I've got a speech impediment. I haven't had a speech impediment so far. I, I, 
I'm not good at public speaking. I've heard that before. Doesn't matter. I want you to go. I'll tell you what, your brother, Aaron, he can talk for you. I just want you to perform the miracles. What miracles? I don't know any miracles. Stick your hand in your shirt, okay? Take your hand out. Bah! Now put your hand back in your shirt, okay? <laughs> now it's, whew. Okay, now take your staff, throw it on the ground. It's a snake. Pick it back up. It's a stick. I would have done that for hours. <laughs> I'm serious. I would have done that for an I, I'd say, snake, stick, snake, stick, snake, stick. And he goes, battles. Now, Moses is a reluctant hero. He's submitting to God because he just, he can't argue. Because God just said, put your hand in your shirt and it comes out covered with leprosy. Okay, if I say no to him now, what's he going to do? Right? So he goes and he battles it out with Pharaoh. And there's the, the plagues, the, the turning the, the Nile to blood. And then there's the frogs. And then there's the flies. And then there's the boils. And then there's the darkness. And, and, and this just sounds like such a pleasant time to be in Egypt. Ugh. Right? And then, then... The Passover. People of Israel and tell them to find a lamb, a pure lamb, a lamb that doesn't have any spot, any blemish, no handicap, no flaw. Twilight, I want each family to sacrifice that lamb. If family's not big enough for, for one lamb to, to cover, you know, there's leftovers, I want you to bring a couple of families together. And I want you, after you slaughter that lamb, save some of the blood, and you put it on the doorposts. And the angel will pass over, and your house will not be visited by the plague. Just got done watching the Nile River turn to blood. This guy's stick turned into a snake. I saw boils. I saw frogs. I saw flies. Okay. A little extra on the inside. Splice inside the house. Right? And they submit to God's will. What do you imagine the predominant emotional and mental responses of God's people in Egypt when this happens? hope you can hear it in their mind as they're as they're dipping the the, the branches in the blood to put it on the doorpost as, as god says because he said very specifically use this plant to paint it on the doorposts right i know what i'm saying i sure hope this works it's hope the passover meal is a meal of Hope. Because if God didn't, if He didn't keep His promise, if He didn't deliver them from Egypt, what would have happened to the people of Israel? They went from favored status to slaves just because their Pharaoh rose up that couldn't read a history book. And as they started getting too populous, Pharaoh said, okay, we gotta, we, we gotta do something about these, these Jews. So here's, here's the deal. I want you to tell all the midwives that if the baby's coming out as a boy, then it needs to die. And the midwives wouldn't have a part in that. So they lied. Sorry, these Jewish ladies, you know, time we get their kids already out. Can't make it look like an accident. So then the, the Pharaoh ups the ante a little bit. Okay. If it's a boy, throw him in the river. What would have happened to the people if God had not delivered them? Y'all want you want your freedom? You got too much time on your hands. You're whining to this Moses fellow. I tell you what, we're doubling the quantity, and we're not giving you any straw. You got to go gather that first. What would have happened? If God had not kept his promise.
The Passover meal was a meal of hope. And every year, with some exceptions, as a memorial, the people of Israel celebrated the Passover like Jews do today in the hope that God will send his king and deliverer and establish his kingdom with the people of Israel at their proper place. That Passover was an established ceremony, such a time-honored tradition, so ingrained into the people of Israel, every Jewish man over the age of 13 could lead the Passover meal himself. 13. Because that's when a boy goes through the bar mitzvah process and becomes a man. Now, being the geek that I am, as I was preparing out online, because I wanted to see if I could get the, the sequence of the liturgy of the Passover meal, because that would have been to be able to show you just exactly where in the process that Jesus changed things up. But what I discovered was that the, the Passover meal has been changed in the last 4,000 years. Moses commanded the people of Israel, prior to their release, they were supposed to be dressed for traveling, right? You hike up your robe and you tuck it into your belt. You have your walking staff in your hand. You roast the lamb quickly. You serve it with bitter herbs and you are prepared to go because, you know, once the firstborn of Egypt starts to die, Pharaoh's going to want you all off his property. Slaughter the lamb at twilight, on the doorframe. Their freedom was near at hand. Well, then, then we have the 40-year the sojourn in the wilderness for that two-week journey to the promised land because they didn't have GPS. <laughs> and they kept complaining. It's worse than saying, are we there yet? And they kept the Passover for 40 years because Moses is leading them. You meatheads wouldn't listen to me, so we're doing this just exactly the way God said we're going to do this. Forty years. And then they entered the promised land under Joshua. They celebrated the Passover. And then after Joshua passed away, we had that period of the judges. And during the period of the judges, what happened with uh, the folks in Israel? Yeah, they started mingling the Passover with some other stuff going on. You know, they, they did that syncretism before where you don't just worship God but you worship all the others just in case that that guy from the mummy who has all the different symbols on his 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 necklace right as the mummy's chasing after him he's like and he recites a prayer and he tries this one he tries this one so the Passover off kind of fell out of favor kind of fell out of practice and then kings we had David, a man after God's own heart, united the kingdom and everything was good and they all did what they were supposed to do. The Passover's reestablished. They didn't have a temple yet. And then we had Solomon. And everything was good and the kingdom was prosperous and the temple was built and everything's great. And then we have the divided kingdom that we started talking about before. And so after all of those really bad rulers and everything there was a, another young king that came to power in the southern kingdom. His name was Josiah. I remember reading about him. If not, I recommend First Kings and First Second Chronicles. They're a good read. King Josiah, young kid. I think he was like 14, 11. Okay. I'll take your word. I couldn't even remember the date of a Sunday two weeks from now. Um, he sends the priests into the temple and they dust off the old scrolls and they discover, hey, look, there's all of these things that we're supposed to have been doing we haven't been doing. And so King Josiah says, we're bringing it back. And they started celebrating Passover again. But now they have a temple. And one of the reforms that King Josiah brought about was to change the Passover feast. Because, you know, it really doesn't make sense for us to act like we're being delivered from slavery since we're in our own country. 
So now the Passover feast is transformed from a family observance at home to a pilgrimage feast where the family would go to Jerusalem. Family lamb out in the backyard would be slaughtered at the temple and mass by the priests instead of by the father of the family. The ritual changed. The meal was eaten at a table where everybody reclined and, and sat back. And, and in fact, the, the modern liturgy, one of the questions that the young man at the table is supposed to ask his father is, why do we eat like this, like kings? So the, the whole thing changed a little bit. It was that changed ritual that the Jews were celebrating when all of a sudden the Babylonians showed up. What did the Babylonians do? Yeah, they destroyed the temple. Made it a little difficult for the Jews to follow the Passover feast. And then the Medo-Persian Empire let them go back and build the temple. And if you remember what happened with uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember when they started building the foundation of the temple and all the old people who had seen the previous temple saw the new temple, what did they do? They cried because it was such a humble structure as compared to Solomon's grand temple. And so, Passover was changed. And then from the Medo-Persian Empire, we have the Greek Empire, we have the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, who tossed Palestine back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then we have the Romans, who occupied Palestine, and, and they all impacted the Jewish celebration of the Passover. At this point, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not even the promised land. You have Judea, which is the the southern two kingdoms plus a little bit of territory. And you have Galilee, which is predominantly Jewish, but it's made up of a, a, a mishmash, melting pot society. And then in the middle between them, you have Samaria, which are the, the outcasts, the half God who had promised their delivery from Egypt and their receipt of the promised inheritance, that gave them hope that the occupations of Israel would not be forever. As long as they could trust in God's promise, they could have hope. We're at a point, we here, us, locally, are at a point where things look pretty dark, pretty depressing. Because God's word tells us that he will work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things, not just the stuff that we like. Got to remember that sometimes. We hope we know His Word tells us that it does not turn void. So as long as His Word is preached, it's doing what He intends for it to do. We have hope because we can already see His hand at work in this neighborhood. And if you don't believe me, close your eyes and think about the state of the parking lot one hour ago. It was packed. There are people being reached. We can have hope. Now, I'm going to do something different at this point. I don't want you all to freak out. Okay, I say that because this is a Baptist church still. And as soon as the word different comes out of my mouth, people all of a sudden go, <laughs> you can stay right there. There's the first different. Okay? <laughs> all right? As I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm going to distribute the elements because I want you to put in your head here the picture of the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 26. They're sitting at the table. They're gathered together. They're reclined at the table. They're talking. They're having a meal. 
And as they're having this meal, Jesus drops that first bombshell. He says, you know, one of you guys is going to betray me. <laughs> what? Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure one of you is going to betray me. Me? Is it me? Am I the one? Jesus says, well, the one who dips his bread in the bowl with me is the one who's going to, to betray me. Says, Lord, is it me? Jesus says, yeah, the one who said so. You're about to go do, do quickly. I pass out the elements. I want you to have that picture in your head of the meal as it's going on. Now, one of the things that I was looking up online as I was getting prepared for this, like I said, I wanted to have the liturgy at hand so we could talk our way through the meal. Um, the fact of the matter is there are some scholars who will tell you that the meal that Jesus shared with the disciples was not the Passover. And they have some pretty sound scriptural evidence for that. Um, and they also have some pretty harebrained ideas, if truth be told. <clears throat> the, the Passover feast that we can find in the modern literature for those who celebrate The, uh, the, the Seder meal actually comes out of a book and is attributed to a rabbi and that rabbi did not live until approximately 100 A.D., so I have a hard time saying that that's the Seder meal that Jesus was following. But what I can tell you is that the meal that he was enjoying with his disciples was one that they were accustomed to. They were not expecting any surprises. They were not expecting anything different to happen. After all, like I said, any man over the age of 13 could recite this ritual from memory. Though they didn't. I always had written script just in case. And at the end of his life, he takes that ceremony that's been changed. Moses gave them the instructions, and then it was modified as they came into their own in the promised land, and then it was modified after the abandonment of the ceremonies when King Josiah reestablished it, and then it was modified when they went into captivity with the Babylonians, and it was modified here, and it was modified there, it had been changed. Here at the end, Jesus takes that changed ceremony, and at some point in the meal, the modern Seder has the bread take place about halfway to three-quarters of the way through the ceremony. Jesus takes bread as well group, takes the bread and he blessed it. He said grace. He said a blessing over the bread. Probably blessed is the Lord God our Father who brings forth bread from the earth, so on and so forth. That's the typical Jewish blessing over the bread. And then he broke the bread, which is normal. But then he threw a pipe wrench in their bicycle spokes. Because he took that bread and he broke it, and he said, now this, this is my body. It's about to be beaten and broken, just like I broke this bread. Eat this as a memorial of the grace that you are receiving from my Father. 
Here you go. Thirteen guys at the table, assuming there was nobody else there. They know what the liturgy looks like. They know what the liturgy sounds like. They know what Jesus was supposed to have said. And all of a sudden, he says, here, this is my body. Probably have heard a pin drop. The quiet around the table. The gears in the minds of the disciples. This isn't, this, this, this isn't part of the, 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 the Passover. Jesus, what are you doing? Now keep in mind, even though that ceremony had changed and changed and changed and changed over the years, these were Jews. They're worse about changing things that God has prescribed than we are. God said, do it this way. Okay. This isn't part of the pattern, except Jesus says, this is my body. The body of the lamb who was slaughtered, that death might pass over. And so probably, reluctantly, okay, they they took the bread. Okay. Peter, thinking back to Caesarea Philippi, you are the son of the living God. I think what he's doing. They took that bread and they ate it. Like we're going to do right now. Let's eat together. Now eventually, I expect that they settled back into the comfortable rhythm of the meal after that little period of awkwardness. I mean, it's just bread, right? They have seen Jesus turn water into wine. They have seen him feed 5,000 people and 4,000 people, respectively, with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. So when he said, this is my body, there were probably some of them thinking, uh, we ain't supposed to eat human flesh. It's just bread. So they continued on with their meal. And then at the end of the meal, Jesus takes the cup of wine and he blesses it. Blessed are you, God our Father, who brings forth fruit from the vine, blah, 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 so on and so forth. I don't I didn't memorize the prayers. And then he changes it again. Because in the in the modern Seder, there is one cup. It's a big cup. It's not these things. And it's got wine in it. And after the, the father or the head of the, the table pronounces the blessing on the wine, he then turns to the person on his right and he pours into their glass, and they pour into the next glass, and so on and so forth, until everybody's been served, and then they all drink. But Jesus, he takes the cup, and he blesses it, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. My blood, which is about to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink it. Cricket, cricket, cricket. I'm about to go to Jerusalem and be sacrificed, turned over to the Gentiles and be crucified. No, you're not. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Cricket, cricket. Oh, look, butterflies. I'm about to be turned over to the Gentiles by one of you. My end is at hand. I am about to die. So is the lamb roasted yet? This is my blood that's about to be poured out. Oh. Oh, he's serious. He means it. 
He's about to give up. Then you have the idea, because he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. What was the old covenant? Who made the old covenant? God did. With who? Abraham. Abraham, he sealed it with the, with the animals. Remember he had Abraham sacrifice the animals, lay them out with the two halves on either side, and then Abraham kind of fell asleep, and he saw the vision of the burning censer go between the two halves of the animals, representing God passing through, God making the statement, if I don't keep my covenant with you, may it happen to me like it happened to these animals. Right? Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, I know we said you're the son of the living God, but uh, only God has the ability to make a covenant. And what does it have to do with you shedding your blood? Because if you're dead, who's going to keep the covenant? Just a question. This this body being broken thing, this being poured out thing, that means death. How are we starting a new covenant? And then, if those two things weren't enough, if it wasn't enough for Jesus to say, this is the new covenant in my blood, my blood that's going to get poured out, I'm going to die, there's going to be a new covenant, then these 12 Jewish men, gears click into place, Jesus just said, this cup is what? Blood. What? was one of the single big restrictions that the Jews followed. Do not eat an animal with its blood still in it. Even today, strictly kosher adhering Jews will not eat a meat that is cooked to anything less than medium well. Even though science has proven that the juice that comes out of a piece of meat that is cooked to medium or even medium rare, is not blood. Doesn't matter. Looks like blood, it's blood. And oh, by the way, Jesus said, this is my blood, so this is human blood. So there we have that whole human flesh blood thing, right? And Jesus said, all of you, drink of it. So probably more than a little reluctantly, the disciples drank from the cup. Now, it was a common cup. Like I said, the modern ceremony, you pour your cup into the next guy's, into the next guy's, into the next guy. Jesus would have had a large chalice that we he would have held up and then passed around the table. Uh, fortunately for all y'all germaphobes, uh, we don't use a common cup. Reluctantly, the disciples drank from the cup. With a little less reluctance, I invite you to drink from the cup. As he finishes, again, I'm going to see that look of relief come across their face as they drink and it's wine. (laughs) Right? Jesus says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Until the wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus said he would not drink of the wine. In other words, he's waiting. He's waiting for us. But he does commend the ceremony to us. He says that when we do this, in remembrance of him, it's it's a means of declaring the gospel until he comes again. It is a mean 
a, a means of us to remind ourselves to have that hope, to have peace, to have that joy, to have that love towards one another. It is a reminder to us going through the Christian life alone, we are part of a bigger family of believers. And if nothing else gives you hope, that should. I'm going to invite you all to stand for our last song. And while we're getting ready for it, I want to give you another one of those little little individual God things, okay? So I had Alyssa pick out the songs last weekend before I her back up to school. As a matter of fact, I think you did it Sunday afternoon, didn't you? So after we got home from church last week. The last song is number 175, O Come Up, Come Emmanuel. Okay. So Tuesday, I believe it was, uh, because I have been known to the memory. I know that's hard to believe. Um, I couldn't remember the sequence of the candles yet again. Okay? So I did Steph to verify first week's hope. And because my wife knows me better than anybody else, she sent me some examples with, with the different themes and some options for me to go through. And and the last one that she sent me was uh, actually recommended for Baptists who celebrate Advent, because apparently we're rare. And uh, that's where I got the reading for this morning. That's where I'm getting the reading for the next weeks. And there are suggested songs for each week. The suggested song for this week was O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So that's another one of those God things. So when you think he's not in control over something... Watch it, because he's 